Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Feel free to grab a seat. If you're visiting, it's great to see you. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, And we're in a series that we're coming rapidly to a conclusion of just eight short weeks on this long book of 1 Corinthians. It's the longest letter this first century author Paul writes. He writes it to a church that he's planted in about AD 51-ish, and then he goes back to just to to correct some behavior. And, And so we've been tracking with him as he's landed really with these big ethical demands on what living in the way of Jesus looks like. But I thought it would be useful as we kind of wrap this up to to just think through just Jesus' exit from this world, his death, his resurrection, and then his ascension. And I would suggest he really leaves his first followers with these big three things. On one hand, uh, there's the language, I will come back for you. I will come back for you, something that maybe in the 21st century we, we have lost a focus on just a little bit. We, we, we wonder, will that happen? When will it happen? What will it look like? All of these different questions. And yet his reassurance was simply, I will come back for you. It, it reminds me, uh, if you've had kids or taken grandkids to school or can remember being a kid, what it is to take them to school for the first time and you kind of usher them in to the building. You're like, no, I will come back for you. And amongst the tears and amongst the fears, I will come back for you. I'm not giving you a specific time because you wouldn't understand, but, but I, I will come back for you. I have this distinct memory of something about my warped childhood. I, I was taken to school for the first time, and, and they said, now you're going to assembly. I don't know if you call it assembly here, but this place where everyone gathers. And, and the only thing it reminded me of in a word that I knew was disassembly. So I remember lining up, watching my mom drive off in the car after telling me she would come back. And I'm like, they're literally going to take me apart in here. This is the disassembly room. And something about my like my upbeat nature was like, probably be okay. We'll figure it out together. We're a group of people. We'll go in. And, and they said they would come back and somehow everything will, will work out fine. This message of Jesus was, I will come back for you. Concrete promise. I will not leave you alone. Even though I am removed from the world, there is this promise of the Holy Spirit. We'll get to some of that language later, but, but you do not do this solo. This is not all on you. There is presence, and as we'll get to later, there is power there for you. And then this one, love others as I have loved you. Broad, like base-level Christian ethic. Sounds really simple, really hard to live up to. Love others as I have loved you. When we ask questions like this, what does the way of Jesus look like in Littleton in AD 2022? Some of those questions are relevant. Maybe not the first one, because we don't have control over that, but the second two, they become our basically ruling ethics, right? They become our understanding of, yes, we have God working with us. If you're a follower of Jesus, that's true for you and true for me, but, but also that we're supposed to love as Jesus loved. If we were to phrase it like this, how does the church thrive with all of these other cultures around it? It, it thrives like that. It thrives when people recognize that the Spirit dwells within them and they love others as Jesus loved 
them. This is what Paul is trying to get across to his church. And, and we just read a chunk of scripture. Kathleen got the hard assignment. There were other people that got six verses, and we got two chapters. So if this feels like drinking from a fire hose, I understand if you feel like a normal week feels like drinking from a fire hose, then, well, I'm going to pray for you. It's going to be fine. We'll get through this together. But, but there's a lot to cover there, and I wanted to ground it in some story. And if you know any pastors, pastors always have stories. So some of them are true, and some of them are true-ish, and then some of them are just not true, and they're covered up with the, the good old ethic of never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And I, and I thought, what can I give to, to give some grounding of this as a whole story, to give us some sense of where the whole movement of these two big chapters goes? And I couldn't think of anything. I was lost for story, and, and then it occurred to me, maybe actually we're better off not just talking about a story, but maybe what grounds this passage for us as people trying to follow Jesus is stories in general. Uh, it's, uh, how, how do stories work is maybe the question that I, that I would ask you. You start often with a hero or a heroine. Apparently, we don't use the term heroine anymore. I've been told it's like actress that's disappeared. Uh, we now say actor, regardless of gender. Apparently, it's now a hero, regardless of gender. But I used heroine, and I made sure to spell it correctly, because if you don't have the E on the end, it says something very different uh, and isn't a Christian story at that point, potentially. You start with a hero, and you have a heroine. And, and think about a story that you love. Think about any mythical story, any fictional story. For the most part, they quite often follow the same pattern. There is a part to play. Maybe you'd phrase it like there's an invitation to a quest for a specific person. Uh, there's the power to play that part, the necessary tools, the things that they need to get through this quest. And at some point, there's this conundrum. At some point, there's this moment, this opportunity to turn back, this opportunity to, to give up. And, and then comes into question, do they have the heart to play it well? It's a character question. Will they get through it? I, I would suggest broadly these three areas encompass most stories. Think about good old Bilbo Baggins sat on his doorstep. All he really wants is a quiet life. He just wants to sit there smoking his pipe. He doesn't want anything to happen to him, and yet something does happen to him. Gandalf the wizard turns up and, and invites him to a quest, and, and at multiple points the question becomes, well, do I have the power to play my part? Do I have the heart to get through it, making the right choices? C.S. Lewis the Chronicles of Narnia, same questions. These children get pulled into a story, they get given gifts that enable them to play their part, and then there's this moment of, will I play that part well? Will I stick to the good side? Will I turn to the dark side? Star Wars, anything. You can pull almost any story into this really basic framework. Knowing that there's like two or three of you that love to nerd out with me, uh, the, this character, Father Christmas, Santa Claus, who makes his way into the Chronicles of Narnia, was a very controversial decision because Tolkien, C.S. Lewis's good friend, was convinced you couldn't mix mythologies. 
If you wanted dwarfs in your mythologies, that was fine, but then you couldn't have talking animals. And regardless of what you did, you certainly couldn't have Father Christmas just appearing randomly in the middle of novels. And so Tolkien would give this really strong critique of everything that C.S. Lewis write. And, and at one point, he would very specifically say, normal things don't belong in mythology. You can't have things like lampposts in mythology, and so C.S. Lewis went away and wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, and their first entrance into Narnia, it says, and there was a lamppost. It's just the, the, the banter between the two of them. Father Christmas comes into this story as the giver of gifts to enable them to play their part, and they'll still have to figure out, do I have the heart to play it? I would suggest this is the framework Paul is playing with right here. Now, I'm not saying that that makes the story made up. What I'm saying is somewhere this idea about story, it came from somewhere. It came from somewhere. And I would say Paul in this moment is saying, I'm going to tell you about a bigger story, a real story that each one of you are pulled into. And in amongst that story, you have a part to play. And you have the power to play it. And the question will become, how will you play that part? How will you play that part? Let's jump into the text and hopefully you'll see it jump out at you. Now about the gifts of the Spirit. He, he starts with this language of spirits, language that if you're kind of new to the church thing, you might say, I'm not sure what he's talking about there and we'll get to that in just a little bit. Brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or another, you were influenced and led astray by mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one is speaking by the whole who's speaking by the holy spirit says jesus be cursed and no one can say jesus is lord except by the holy spirit paul starts off with this language of if you are following jesus that very declaration jesus is lord is only made possible by a relationship with god that is already going on within you and now, now we might miss that a little bit today but imagine in the first century where the common declaration is this caesar is lord Caesar is Lord. The, the very phrase, Jesus is Lord, has a subversiveness to it. And Paul suggests when you say that, there's something driving you to say it. There's something working inside you that, that is maybe invisible, but certainly important. That's like his baseline understanding of what it is to follow Jesus. Now, there are different kinds of gifts but the same spirit, he goes back to this language of spirit, the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. He gives us this idea that if you're familiar with church languages, is that it's hard. It's distinctly a Trinitarian idea. Now that in itself is a complex term that we sometimes get lost in the academia of what does it mean? What does the Christian claim that God is three in one and one in three? What does that mean? How do you make that make sense academically? And here's the fascinating part to me. The biblical writers, they don't actually seem to have a lot of interest in whether it makes sense academically. They're not worried, particularly about the academics. In actual fact, the Bible as a whole, the biblical writers, all the way back to Genesis, there the can be academic truth to them, but that doesn't seem to be the thing they're interested in, in arguing. Very rarely in Genesis, the beginning book, does it push the idea that God is all-knowing. It's just taken for granted. 
Very rarely does it suggest that God was any of the things all powerful, the things that we find to be important to discuss. It just seems to take them for granted. The one thing it does come back to over and over again is that God is deeply relational. While we see these different aspects, there's a spirit that gives gifts, a son that calls to a service, and a father who's working beyond all things. The, the idea at its heart, it's not necessarily about academics. At its heart, it's deeply relational. If you were in a liturgical service, if you were at a, a funeral in the liturgical church, one of the things you might hear is a moment of commendation where the body is put down into the ground and there's this language that reflects this. You might hear something like this. Go into the presence of God the Father who made thee, of Jesus Christ who loved thee and died for thee, and of the Holy Spirit who sustains thee. In the languages reflected, all three are important, and it matters that there are three, and it matters that those three are one, and it doesn't argue points, it doesn't make it academic. It simply says you need all three of these persons in your life in relationship with you. If you, if you want to prod towards figuring this out, don't look for academics. I'd, I'd suggest start here. Don't start with one God and look for three persons. Start with the reflection that there's three persons to interact with, and just recognize that the Bible accepts, the biblical faith accepts. Those three are one. doesn't get very much more complicated than that. So it's a Trinitarian idea that we're thrust into, and Paul says, and now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Wow, that's, that's some hard language. The, the gifts, the working of the Spirit is given for the common good. This thing, this Spirit thing happens so that we can be the church together. Now, for some of you, if you grew up in a certain environment, you might say, this is just foreign language to me. These are these gifts. I didn't really know they existed. And he gives a whole list of them, a message of wisdom, a message of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, miraculous power, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, speaking in different kinds of tongues, interpretation of tongues. There are all of these different things. And to a certain background, you might say, I'm just not sure what any of those things are. You might say from another kind of background, I, I know what they are, but I don't believe that they're supposed to be used today. And, and from another background again, you might say, yes, this, this is the stuff that I'm here for. We could spend a whole day or week going through what each one of these mean, but, but I don't know where it would get us. What I would suggest the overriding thing is that I would want us to grasp is this. For Paul writing to this early church, he said, distinctly involved in this Christian faith is a certain kind of power to live out that faith. If you've ever thought back to being a child and remember reading a book, have you ever had that feeling where you would close the book at the end and you would say something to yourself like, I wish I could do the things that they did in that book. Maybe it's got that epicness to it. You see the heroes, they, they, they take on these big challenges and they, they come through in the end. Or maybe it's something like Harry Potter and you hear about spells and you hear about power and all these different things. And, and maybe there's this moment of like, oh, I wish I could do that. And yet the earliest biblical writers unabashedly said, no, that that's part of the Jesus story. That's part of the Jesus story, and that's what we're presented with. This list is something that Paul just takes for granted, and we get left asking, why is it that it's not so much a today thing? What are we supposed to do with it today? It leaves us just hanging there, wrestling with it just a little bit. 
It might be quite possible that Paul, this writer in the first century, if he could see our 21st century church, would, would be fairly horrified that we thought we could manage all of it by ourselves without some of these things, some of these gifts that he's talking about. He tells us that all of these are the work of one of the same spirit, and he distributes these gifts to each one of them just as he determines. This relational God that he presents us with is also a giver of gifts, and then just lurking under the surface. He leaves this question without answering it. He doesn't tell us how you know. He says there's all these gifts. You have some of them. Everyone is included. Everyone participates in this And then he doesn't give us any information about how you might know which gift you're supposed to have. He just says, this is an each one thing. Everyone's involved in some way. That's how he paints a picture of the church. And the question I have to ask as someone who stands up in front of a church a lot and does a lot of the work in the church is, how much does the way we do church reflect that picture? And and Paul, as he often does, is now going to turn a corner and maybe show us just a little bit of that. Just as a body, the one has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one Part, but of many. It's, it's classic Paul. If you got used to him by now in this first Corinthian series, he can seem like he just turned a corner and started talking about something that seems different, but he seems convinced, no, this is, this is something that we need to know. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. And now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Now, just time out for a second. With the first century being what it was, there was not parchment and ink just going spare. These things were expensive, and if someone writes something that's this long with this much detail, it means it's really important. That they want us to grasp hold of it. So Paul goes into detail on this picture of what a body looks like, and he suggests that we as a church, we are a body like this. And it's supposed to capture our sense of the ridiculous. His last image is of an ear floating around with nothing else attached to it. He wants us to catch the absurdness of what he's suggesting. If one part could claim to be everything, like what, what, what kind of body would that look like? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. And he goes back, says it a second time, the eye cannot be to the hand. I say to the hand, I do not need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I do not need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are most, uh, that are unrepresent, uh, unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. He goes on and on in this detail of what a body looks like. And for us, It's pretty foreign language. Perhaps the only way we might understand what he's saying here is to think about what it is to be on a beach or by a pool. We have a sense of there are things that you wear on the beach that cover up necessary parts, and then there's the things you wear the rest of the time, and that's about as close 
as our language gets. The first job I was given as a youth pastor when moving to America about 10 years ago was some of my interns sat down and said, we're going on a trip, will you write the bathing suit policy for us? And I said, what's a bathing suit policy? That sounds fascinating. Uh, and they said, well, this is tradition in America, right? You have to tell people what they're going to wear on a trip. And I said, I believe that kind of thing can get you fired in most other countries, but okay, I can, I can get on board for a moment. We have this sense of what's normal and what's not normal. But that's far different from how these things were done in the first century in the Middle East, in the Mediterranean, and perhaps still done today to a certain degree. They had a very distinct sense of which parts were important and which parts weren't important. The eye was important. The right hand was important. Whereas in certain cultures, just to mention the word foot or feet required in polite company that you give a warning that, guys, just let, let me let you know, I'm, I'm going to talk about feet now, and you need to be aware of what's coming. This is how they saw different parts of the body. So if you think back to 2003, anyone who can remember that far back, Saddam Hussein, uh, is, Iraq is invaded, they knock down the statue, and a bunch of Iraqi people gather around and and if you can remember, what do they do to the statue? They take out their sandals and they beat the statue with their sandals because sandals are attached to the feet and they have no honor. When Paul talks about parts of the body to a first century audience, the first thing that comes to mind is some parts are good and some parts aren't good. So if we're all parts of a body, I want to be the most important parts. Don't make me a foot. Let me be an eye. Don't make me a part that's not honorable. Let me be a part that is honorable. We don't get that. That doesn't cross over to our culture. And so Paul says, no, I, I don't want you to obsess about that. Don't suddenly go away from what I'm saying about the body, saying, which part can I be? Can I be the most important part? He says, no, go away, saying, it doesn't matter which part I am. I'm actually part of a whole, and that actually is what is important. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. He wants us to grasp one thing. You are a body together. Every single one of you matters. Don't try and be the most important. Don't try and be the least important. Find out where you fit and operate there. The, the language that Archbishop Desmond Tutu uses is, is this. A self-sufficient human is a sub-human. Is a sub-human. Can you feel how Paul's language pushes against our 21st century-ness? Because we want to be self-sufficient. I had a new... Um, dishwasher delivered just a few weeks ago and, and my neighbor who loves to help out with stuff who really has just been a wonderful neighbor to us is a plumber and he kind of said do you want me to come and and fix the dish fit the dishwasher for you and what I found myself saying is this no I'll, I'll give it a go myself I'll give it a go myself 
couple of things that don't tend to go hand in hand, pastoring and knowing anything about anything practical. And so I, I had this moment where I tried and I worked and then eventually I went over to Araldo and I said, so uh, could you come help with the dishwasher for just five minutes? And of course, in five minutes, everything was working. We have a desire for self-sufficiency, which Paul would find uh, fairly abhorrent to the nature of church. You might say that he declares church is no place for self-sufficiency. It's no place for self-sufficiency. I'm always intrigued when I see organizations outside of church grasp something that seems distinctly Christian in its ethic, but without the mention of God. And my sister-in-law the other day went with her boyfriend to Burning Man, which is this festival out in the desert. Now, if you know anything about Burning Man, you know that there's, there's principles to Burning Man. Not a lot of concrete rules or maybe even ethics in some of the areas we might think ethics are important. So there's this moment where my sister-in-law said, oh, we've got some pictures. Do you want to see them? And I said, no, because I'm not sure what might be in those pictures and kids are awake and all those different types of things. It's, it's a festival known for almost anything goes in some respects. And yet with some really strong principles and ethics behind it, this is one of their principles. Our community is committed to a radically participatory ethic. We believe that transformative change, whether in the individual or in society, can only occur through the medium of deeply personal participation. We achieve being through doing. Everyone is invited to work. Everyone is invited to play. We make the world real through actions that open the heart. They stole our idea. I mean, that does not that sound like the core of what it is to follow Jesus in community? Does that not sound like something Paul would say? There's this danger that the way we often do community is so different to how Paul dreamed it up, that if he were here watching, he would look at Burning Man and say, they reflect what I was talking about more in some ways than the Jesus communities do that I'm observing. That should be a challenge. One of the early, earliest iterations of their principles was this, you are wanted, you are needed. You are wanted and you are needed. You might say that Paul's argument across the, the, the basis of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is this, that the church is no place for observation. And so my heart ache there is, is almost an apology, a sorrow for the way that we've made it about observation. The way that we've made it about observation. A, a good friend in this community that I want to keep anonymous, so I'll just call him Jordan F. Oh no, that, that's too obvious. I'll call him J. Foot. That, that, will, that will do. Um, he came to me not long ago and he said, you know, I started changing the way I thought about attending church. I used to come with this sense of, I'm going to get something from this. And that's not unimportant. But then after a while, he said, about six months ago, I decided this. I was going to come believing that God spoke through me and that I might hug people in a particular way or give advice in a particular way or listen in a particular way. And that might be transformative for one person or two people or three people, that that might distinctly make a difference. And he said, what I've noticed is this. I tend to come away from church a lot more tired now than I used to when I used to come just to observe because I come believing that it, it comes with a cost. 
One of the things that fascinates me about Paul's language around spirit is not just the gifts part, because we'll get to that in just a second. What fascinates me is this. What would it look like if we or any church became a community where every single person arrived or prepared with this mentality? I am the conduit of this spirit that Paul talks about. There is just a possibility because I'm here, something for somebody might be different today. That God might speak in a particular way to somebody else, that it might actually matter that I'm there. Because if I'm not, there's one conduit or one voice left. Less. I think the way we've done church has suggested this. It doesn't matter who turns up at all. I think the way that we've, just, we've done church suggests that so long as there's a crowd, that's all that matters. And outside of a couple of different people, it's just a faceless group. And yet it seems like Paul's language is this. No, it actually matters that you turned up today because it's just possible through you God might speak in a particular way. It seems this language is you have a part to play and then all of the spirit stuff starts to fall into place because it seems that correspondingly you have the power to play it. You are the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it and God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles. The actual gifts aren't actually that important because they are just that gifts. They all have a role to play. The fact is that every single one of us is called to be a part of that somewhere. The language that he started with was this, now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. You are here for this common good and it actually matters that you individually turned up today, or at least it should. We're gonna skip this because I'm running out of time, which was always possible. I would suggest that while all of that is important though, the whole passage hinges on how we understand what Paul says next. Because for a bunch of time in history, what, what his next comment has been taken as is, don't worry too much about what I just said. Worry about what I'm going to say. Everything hinges on this. Now eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. For lots of denominations, lots of churches, lots of history, how that has been read is, now eagerly desire the spiritual gifts yet, yes, but, but, but now I'm going to tell you something that's more important. And if you're going to forget one of the two, forget the first thing and concentrate on what I'm about to say now. In actual fact, how it should be read is this, the first part is so, so, so important. It matters that you know, and I know that you have a part to play and the power to play it, but... But this new passage is going to frame and support everything about how you do that. When he says the most excellent way, it actually means the most difficult way. His picture is of a mountain pass with a big precipice that it falls into. He actually says, what I'm going to ask you to do now is incredibly difficult. And then he goes off in this ode to love that is perhaps the greatest thing that he ever writes, or maybe the greatest two or three things that he ever writes writes. And maybe you've only heard it at weddings. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. 
Love is patient, love is kind, does not envy. It does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Which is ironic because Paul has spent most of 1 Corinthians complaining about how he's been wronged, but it suggests that you don't actively take, look to take revenge on those wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And the actual language is it never falls. When it walks on that high precipice, it doesn't fall off the other side. It maintains its footing. We use that phrase quite often, all you need is love. And I I guess my question would be, is it correct to say that all you need is love? I found this beautiful little quote from Moulin Rouge. It's a question about how much do you believe in love? And Ewan McGregor's character says, love, love, love above all things I believe in love. Love is like oxygen. Love is a many splendid thing. Love lifts us up where we belong. All you need is love. And yet, according to Paul, it's not all we need. It is the most excellent way. But we also need to know that we have a part to play in this community and the power to play it. Now, let me give a caveat really quickly there. There are times and seasons where you might say, I just don't have anything to give right now. There's times and seasons where we recognize that South is this thing that isn't just Sunday morning. It happens all throughout the week in all sorts of different places, in all sorts of different shapes. And yet it seems like every single one of us is called to walk into those places in those different ways and say, God, I am made by you to play a part somewhere. And acknowledge, yes, you have given me the power to play it. But whether our prophecies, they will cease. Whether our tongues, they will be stilled. Whether is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It doesn't say why. Is it because faith and hope at some point in some distant future will disappear? But he maintains at his core, the greatest of these is love. The thing that undergirds everything is love. I've used this illustration a few times during this series. I've talked about learning to play the cello and how bad I am at it. And someone very kindly pointed out to me that your cello is broken. And I said, I know it's broken. It's been broken for a little while. And I was going to learn to play Bach's cello suite so, so I could demonstrate that the way of Jesus is hard and it takes practice and it needs work. And, and Jesus is unashamed of the fact that his way is hard. And his Sermon on the Mount may be the greatest ethical thing ever written, but it's very difficult to do. But I wonder actually if cello is the best illustration of what it is to play, to, to, to play music in the way of Jesus or to play the way of Jesus. I actually think a better illustration might be the way I play piano. It might be the way I play piano. So I'm going to wander over here for a second because I actually can play this a little bit more than I play the... I'm going to see if I can give you some volume. Oh, I just turned something off. I don't know. Is that playing out there? 
So I can actually play little bits off. Ooh. But I don't play it very well, if I'm honest. The problem is I play everything by ear. So I think I'm playing it right. And often I'm not playing it right. And that's a dangerous place to be in. You see, with the cello, one of the beautiful things about that is this. I'm fully aware that I don't know what I'm doing, so I play it with deep humility. I play it knowing that I'm just beginning. And yet when I play the piano, I think I do know what I'm doing, and I think it sounds right. And yet to anyone in here with a musical ear, you hear multiple notes that are off pitch. And I wonder if that's not more like how we often play the notes of Jesus. Think we think we've got the details right. Think we think we know the rules and we know how to express it to our world and we think our role is to fight for God. And Barbara Taylor said almost no one, no human being is ever as dangerous as they are when they think that they're defending God in the world. Like it puts you in a very risky place. And, and yet I, what I wonder is actually we're trying to play notes that we think are right and I actually wonder if at times we're not just wildly off pitch. And actually everyone around us can hear it. We've played the rules, we've got the list of commandments, all those different things. We know how to tell people when they're right or wrong. But I wonder actually if what they hear just doesn't fit. Paul says that the love is the most excellent way. It's the thing that undergirds everything that we do. Yes, you have a part to play. Yes, you and I each have the power to play it. And yet we have to decide how we play it. And that seems to be transformative. One more slide, I'm gonna ask Aaron to come up on stage. This is a quote from a lady called Hannah Haddad who was living in Lebanon back in some of the conflict. Then in the midst of the sound of thundering guns from the depths of my despair and pain, I finally understood. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I am but sounding brass like the empty shell cases of the big guns. Love alone can bear the burden of, li of the living, for it bears all things. It bears this young man who is standing behind the gun, and that other young man who burned my grandfather's house. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, by our enemies, Jesus means love those that are quite intractable and utterly unresponsive to our love, who forgave us nothing when we forgive them all, who requite our love with hatred. Jesus and Paul both seem to suggest that love has a transformative thing, place in the world, and yet the thing it seems to transform most is the person that is doing it. Perhaps that's why Paul says the greatest of these is love. It hangs the possibility that people and communities might be transformed, and yet it will always transform you and I if that's the way we choose to live. You have a part to play you have the power to play it, and we're left to question how we'll decide to play it. I'm going to walk us through a confession. I'm going to ask Aaron to come up on stage. He's going to lead us in a brief piece of music. But I want to allow you to read it, and I'd love to invite you to stand with me to reflect some of these movements. There's a recognition of our part to play, a recognition of the power to play it, and a recognition of how we often play that. So just take a moment to observe and then in a few moments, I'm going to ask you to hold your hands out in front of you if you want to participate. I'm not going to ask you to close your eyes because you won't be able to read, and that's important. Unless you can read with your eyes closed. I get the white parts, you get the yellow parts. 
God, would you prepare our hearts to pray? In this, up until this moment in the service, we've sung prayers, we've listened, we've thought. In this moment, I want us to very much focus on the fact that we communicate directly with you. That you see our hearts, you know the ways that we value ourselves. And I'm very aware that in the midst of this moment, there are some of us that value ourselves very little. In this moment, would you help us to recognize the difference between how you see us and how we see us? And to recognize that what you see is correct. There are those of us that are questioning, just what do I have to bring? Would you speak to us? And there are those of us that are wondering, I, I feel like I've tried to play the notes of Jesus in the world around me, but, but have I missed love as a thing that undergirds all of that? If you look to the screen, we're going to read Jesus Christ, risen master and triumphant Lord. We come to you in sorrow for our sins and confess to you our weaknesses and unbelief. We have lived doubting our value and left our part unplayed. In your mercy, forgive us. Lord, hear us and help us. We have lived from our own strength and not in the power of your spirit. In your mercy, forgive us. Lord, hear us and help us. We have been driven by self and have rarely embraced the more excellent way. In your mercy, forgive us. Lord, hear us and help us. Thank you, Father, that you hear our prayer. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.